Conversations on Changing the World, a podcast devoted to women's issues and creating change from a distinctly Midwest perspective. I'm Martha Kovach, sociologist, producer, and your host. I'm here today with my co-host, Doug Jones. Building a wall, breaking up families, housing children in cages. We're a long way from Emma Lazarus' call to give me your tired your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Today, Doug and I talk with Lynn Tremonte, a lifelong immigration activist and currently director of the Ohio Immigrant Alliance. Lynn is here to discuss immigration trends and policies and the politics of deportation. Welcome, Lynn, and thank you so much for joining us today. We're very excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you for having me. Memories of 9-11 were still very fresh, and the country was still reeling and still responding to the fears, the anxieties, whether they were legitimate or not. But we were all still um, trying to deal with the new normal that 9-11 presented, and certainly immigration was one of those those hot button issues then it was i was um i worked in dc on 9-11 and i actually worked for an immigration group called the national immigration forum we were very close to getting some sort of immigration reform from president bush Mm -hmm. and vicente fox of mexico in negotiations and then after 9-11 happened of course there was this complete reaction that anybody who's foreign anybody who might might be muslim or look like they're Muslim, whatever that means, um, is suddenly a suspected terrorist. At least that was what we were hearing from some people. So quickly moved into just trying to get a handle on all the different ways that the the Justice Department and the federal government were uh, invading people's civil liberties and um, creating this sort of a police state for some groups of people in America and trying to deal with that. Um, But I think at that time there was a you would put to Americans and say, well, what do you want to preserve? Do you want to protect your your life or do you want to protect your, your liberties, your civil liberties? And people were so scared that they chose yes. their life. And um, I think what's a little bit different this in this current climate is that people say we want to protect both because we think we can protect both and that we don't have to sacrifice all of our values um, about being an open society where we we appreciate free press and, mm-hmm. um, you know, we judge people based on their character and contributions, not the country of birth. We don't have to sacrifice all of that to be a safe society either. And that in fact, you know, if we work together and we have, um, we stop, we'd stop the politics of division and work together more, um, we can, we will be a, a stronger society. So I, I feel like the, the country, at least a lot of people that, um, before were sort of knee-jerk, 
okay, I'll sacrifice anything I can just to be safe. I think a lot of people now are realizing that we can do both, but we have to work together. Yeah, that, that's a false choice. Yeah. To have to pick one or right. the other. Exactly. You were in Washington then. Can you talk about what you were doing? I started in 1998 working on immigration. I was a consultant for the Immigration and Naturalization Service, and they were trying to improve their customer, they call it customer service, but basically they took a business model to immigration and they had, they wanted to, they wanted to reduce the wait times, address inefficiencies in their process for people applying for green cards and citizenship. So I worked sort of on the business side of immigration, just kept running up against the fundamental fact that the laws didn't make sense. So you could come up with the most beautiful, perfect business plan, but if the laws are broken, it's never going to, it's never Mm going to work. And so it just, it was so frustrating. And being from, from Ohio, I didn't know there was a job in advocacy. I didn't know that that was a thing. I knew about lobbyists, but I didn't know that you could do it from a public interest perspective. Nobody ever taught me that in school. And so when I found that out in DC, I actually was a creative writing major, but I was able to sort of bring the creative writing, which is all about creating characters and trying to develop different points of view to tell a story. I was able to take that into the into my work on immigration advocacy to understand okay, this congressman is opposed to this because he has this background or because he has this constituency or, you know, how do we tell a story about what's happening in the media? What kind of, do they need a protagonist? What kind of conflict do they need to see so that they can really tell a good story? So so my training in, in mm-hmm. liberal arts and creative writing um, helped me become a better advocate. So in 2000, I was working at the National Immigration Forum, and that was a policy position. And I was actually at a meeting on the Hill um, on the Senate side when, you know, we were evacuated from the building, and um, I was able to walk back to my office. And, I mean, of course, everything changed for everybody, most especially the people who died. Um, but then, like we talked about, um, like we talked about a bit, the immigration policy debate became all about security and how far we were how far we would go in restricting immigrants in the United States in order to protect ourselves from terrorism. Right now I'm working with a lawyer in Columbus who has several clients who are Mauritanian. Mm-hmm. Their home country is a place where people that, you know, dissidents are arrested by the current government. There's been land grabbing, there's um, people have been expelled from their territory. There have been massacres. Al-Qaeda's grown there. This is a country that was alive with Saddam Hussein. we're talking a Northwestern African Northwestern African, yeah. Lower population, but a large territory, so very attractive for terrorists. They're also dealing with, or the the reality is that they have the largest rate of modern-day slavery. Mm -hmm. 20% of their population is a slave. My. Slavery has only recently been outlawed, but the laws are not being enforced. And so there was a period of time where a lot of the black Mauritanians fled, came to the US, most of them applied for asylum, many of them got it, others didn't, not because they didn't qualify for it, but because the the judge didn't understand what they were saying or they applied too late, there's a deadline about when you can apply, things like that. 
So they were viewed as refugees, They're viewed as refugees. and given asylum. It, well, some were, and then, but the ones that weren't, that didn't get the asylum, were mm -hmm. still viewed as refugees because yeah. it's just they didn't make the technical case correctly. Sure. So the government let the U.S. government let them stay here, and they built their lives here, you know, businesses, homes, but they had to report in to immigration every year. And, and this was sure. roughly how long ago that they entered? Um, they entered in the early 2000s, late 90s and early 2000s. And these are people who had no choice but to leave their country, that they were specifically singled out because they were black Mauritanians, right. and which, which in a sense became illegal to yeah. be, and so they were subject basically to slavery or genocide. Uh, my understanding is, in fact, their citizenship as being Mauritanians was uh, taken away from that. So these were really people who didn't have a country. No, and they and they still don't. And they still don't. Yeah. So. What's happening now is the Trump administration is so hungry to deport people that they forced the Mauritanian government to issue temporary document, travel document, to these folks so that they can be pushed out of the U.S. But once they get in Mauritania, they're still undocumented. They're still stateless. And in Mauritania, if you don't have a national ID, you can be arrested. So it's this catch-22 where the, gov the, the their original government won't give them an ID, is willing to take them back, but once they get there, they could be arrested, and people and and folks have been arrested um, since they've been deported. So these are people who are um, so-called illegal, whether they are in the United States or in their home country, yes. Mauritania, yeah. and that's if they are not killed or enslaved. Right as soon as they return. Yeah, and you know, many of them are in their 50s, 60s. Um, a man was just deported last night who has kidney cancer and hepatitis, and he got no treatment for those conditions while in, the, while in jail for, for immigration. Um, so it's not, it, it goes beyond, it, the, 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 it just kept, keeps getting worse and worse once you hear the way our government's treating people that have already been through more than most of us could ever imagine. And most of the Mauritanians, if, if I'm correct, settled in Columbus, Ohio? Yeah, most, most of the Mauritanians in the United States live in, in Ohio and New York, and there's others throughout, but the biggest population is in Columbus, Ohio. And they just set about to form a community and start businesses That's and right. raise children and uh, I read become Ohio State Buckeye fans. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, it's heartbreaking. That I was talking with a guy who was deported to Mauritania. He was arrested after he was deported there, and he even says to this day, he said, he said, America, I I love this country. I know that what happened to me is not what the majority of you want, and he still wants to come back here. You know, so, I mean, he recognizes that this country, that what we have to offer is so much better than what he can get in Mauritania. It's kind of remarkable. They really go, un I think, in a way, under the radar nationally, because when you talk about immigration, most people think you're talking about Spanish-speaking people. You're right. You're absolutely right. I think Ohio is a little bit different because since we don't have as many um, Latino immigrants as some of the other states, 
we do, and we we just seems that we have a little bit more of a diverse immigrant population mm -hmm. from different countries. Um, also, there's a lot of Somalis in Columbus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people, you know, there's intermarriage between Somalis and Americans, Somalis and other, you know, other groups, and people put down roots and built their lives, and now it's kind of crumbling before their very eyes. I know my family did the same thing in Ohio, only they came from Northern Europe. Yeah, exactly. When was that? Some time ago. <laughs> a long time ago. But it was the same same route. Right. Exactly. Same struggles. and Exactly. The same goals, mm -hmm. right? Which mm -hmm. is people want to live safely and they want, they, want, they want a home where they're not afraid of government soldiers or non-government soldiers busting through the door in the middle of the night and they want to be able to raise their children and have enough food to feed their children and give their kids an education and live in a friendly, safe, a friendly community. safe place yeah. and start businesses and yeah. worship and all the things that we tend to take for granted in this country are in fact sort of such such a trans-border goal and vision that people have for their lives. They are human issues, period. And T parents want their kids to have a better life than right. they had, and right. parents will do anything to ensure that their kids have a better life right. than what they've had. Talk some about what you see as some of the common misconceptions of immigrant populations. One of the biggest misconceptions is that people could come here legally they just choose not to. Okay. Okay. There are a few visas for uh, a doctor to come and work at the Cleveland Clinic. Yes, right. that's correct. There are no visas for somebody to come here and work in the Freshmark uh, pig processing plant. There's not a program for that. There are a couple guest worker programs for different types of agriculture, but they're temporary. The employers don't like them because they have to provide housing and you know they're monitored so they often prefer to hire people who just show up hey my cousin's here you know can can he get a job so trust me people would rather come here with a visa on, on a plane right. than <laughs> a dangerous trek through the border and actually the other misconception now that we're talking about it is that everybody who's here without papers came without authorization and more and more the people that it's people that are getting temporary visas and overstaying their visa because the government has done a tremendous job to really seal up the southern border that at this point it is so dangerous to cross mm -hmm. it didn't used to be a, as dangerous to try to cross from Mexico to the United States and, and come here to work in the 90s it it wasn't as dangerous. It's always dangerous because it's the desert and it's hot. But, but now the way they've put the fencing and stuff, they're pushed. They, they push people to the most remote areas of the of the border mm -hmm. of the desert. So it's extremely dangerous to cross that way. So now most most immigration that's that's unauthorized is coming through with the airports. Um, people come here to, as students, fall in love. Um, they're not ready, quite ready to get married, but they. You know, they want to see where this relationship goes, so they stay. Um, or they come as students and they they can't get an H-1B because the, that's the one of the visa programs for high-skilled workers, but not everybody is going to qualify for the, that program. 
Yeah, they're very limited numbers. Exactly. That. I worked in Silicon Valley. Okay. And, and there was always talk about what the number was of how many yes. could be brought in by the tech companies, and they really wanted them. And and my understanding is that those are pretty specialized skills as well. Very. That's right. That, that a student who was here on a visa and may have made the dean's list and yeah, that's has a 4.0, uh-uh. but in a li- with a liberal arts degree is still not going to qualify, right. even, even though they have their own set of skills and are an advantage to have in this country and they're well-educated, um, they don't qualify for those programs. Correct. Even, even in the pre-9-11 world, there was an enormous paper trail you had to show if you hired somebody and brought them in uh, through those programs. So you had to show that you made an active effort to interview and mm-hmm. uh, and not not be able to find anyone who already had the legal right to work in the U.S. before you could bring someone in. Right. Very specialized, very rare. Exactly. Very small number. That's correct. And what happened too, I think with the technology revolution is that communication across borders got so free, trade got somewhat free, but the movement of people got restricted. And so it's really, um, in the nine, in the two thousands, we were trying to come up with a way to have a visa program to manage the immigration flow, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and I think that's still going to be on the table. Um, but people are also pointing out that this is a human condition to want to move to a, if you live in a third world country or an undeveloped country or a dangerous country and you live fairly close to an awesome economy with you know freedoms, it's just natural that you're going to want to go there. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, of course, every, the, every country has the right to say who can come, you know, come and stay. So, I mean, it's it's a big challenge, but what I do know is that the fact that we haven't come up with the perfect answer for how to deal with future immigration does not give us the right to treat people who are doing a good job working hard and raising families the way we're treating them. I mean, I'm talking about farm workers who there's no oversight over the conditions that they're working in and the heat, People, mm-hmm. young people dying. In, in the fields because they get overheated. And I'm talking about the way the Corsos pe- the people that worked at Corsos were treated when they were arrested. They were treated like they were some dangerous cartel of drug dealers that needed to be surrounded with military style police forces and canine dogs and helicopters and, and machine guns in order to be uh, apprehended. They didn't these are workers. They didn't have people weapons. People showed up for work. Yeah, that day. they're not. Yes. They're not violent or dangerous. They're trying to make seven seventy-five an hour, you know, working sixteen hours a day. So, the over-the-top response to what is supposed to be a civil violation, you know, like, have you guys ever committed a civil violation of the law? I'm sure. I'm not sure. that I would admit. No, no but I'm sure you <laughs> have. We, we probably exceeded the speed limit to get <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, and well, that might even be a crime. I don't know. <laughs> no, but I mean, you fill out your That's tax, true. your tax document, you make a mistake on your tax document or, or just something else. But the point is there should be a proportionality to the way you're punishing people for what they've done. And right now we're using criminal style tactics to go to, to, 
target people that are here working without papers, which is a civil violation. Exactly. And to say they're treated like animals is not an overstatement. I'm aware of a situation in eastern Iowa where uh, people were processed in an animal stockade, quite literally. Cattle Congress. Yes. Yes. Cattle and Congress. brought through in groups. They had mass hearings. Yeah. Does yes. that sound American to what, you? What country is that? <laughs> yeah. And I, I just want to remind our listeners that you're mentioning Corsos, that uh, we are taping this um, at the end of August 2018, and that this is particularly a poignant issue for the Midwest and particularly for Ohio, because at the beginning of the summer in June of 2018, ICE made its two largest workplace raids in its history in Ohio, one at Corso's, which is a, a nursery that provides plants to perhaps your local Lowe's and Home Depot, and the other Freshmark, which is more in central Ohio, which is a very large meat processing plant. Um, and those happened within about two weeks of each yeah, other. that's correct. And currently, we have the issue of the Mauritanians now being the focus of ICE and being deported. So this is not just a border states issue by any means. It's happening all over the country. The Midwest is increasingly seeing it. And Ohio is one of the hot spots now for ICE activities. Uh, and we should say that many of the people who were detained in Ohio were in fact sent to deportation facilities in Michigan. So there's a, an intrastate ice trafficking, if I can use that <laughs> Human word. Human trafficking. Of, of, of people who have been detained. And we'll take a short break now and be back with Lynn Tremonte. What they tell us, how they compel us I know what it's like to wonder what is true In the speeches, the ignorant preaches I know what it's like to be to hear from you. If you have feedback, suggestions, or ideas for future episodes, email us at voices at heartlandwoman.com. And we're back with Lynn Tremonte. Lynn, we've been talking about common misconceptions that people have about immigration and immigrants, and uh, one of the things that is striking to me that you must have to deal with a lot is the popular misconception that to talk about immigrants is to talk about criminals as though they are one and the same. And certainly we have a president now who can't help but about every other morning tweets something having to do with some connection between those two. Could you talk about immigrants and crime? Right. Uh, well, first, let's just start with the facts, which are that 
immigrants commit fewer crimes than U.S.-born Native folks. It's been extremely well documented. There's no, really no empirical debate on that point. So now we're talking into political rhetoric, and it's really irresponsible to me when politicians say things to inflame somebody that are patently false even when they're repeatedly proven that this is false and they continue to repeat them. And but, I, I want to buttress yeah. what you're saying. Today is August 23rd, and the headline in the USA Today is, no, immigrants don't commit more crimes than native-born people. Um, and even the Cato Institute, which is certainly not a liberal uh, entity, uh, the numbers they come up with is basically native-born Americans commit crimes at almost twice the rate of immigrants. Wow, so we should deport the Americans. Absolutely. <laughs> and another comment that's made, you know, there's been over 100 years of data on this topic, and if you don't believe one study, there are 10 more behind it that back it up. Well, that's a really so, good way to put it. So it's very clear. It's, it is clear. And, I mean, listen, there are criminals, people who commit crimes, I should say, of every race, generation, class, of course, all those things determine what type of punishment you'll get. As we know that there's a lot wrong with our criminal justice system, but to sort of exaggerate the numbers of crimes committed by immigrants in order to distract people from your own crimes or your own advisors who are being you know, convicted <laughs> or pleading to, to committing crimes, it's pretty bold. But I guess the only good thing that I can say coming out of all this rhetoric uh, from President Trump is that at least it is forcing Americans to realize that you have to look at the sources of information that you're getting and uh, question everything you're hearing from politicians, make sure you're getting the facts. So it's, I do think it's a very, he's created a very toxic environment. It's had real consequences. The numbers of assaults on people of color because using Trump style rhetoric has been overwhelming murders. And, you know, he's not tweeting about those. So it, it has, it has really had a toxic effect on society, but it's also helping society get more educated. The fact that the USA Today on its front page rights about the facts on immigrants and crime is pretty important. Sure, they felt compelled to make them public, and what they made public is really compelling. Yeah, exactly. One of the the other factors there is that race and class and all of those things affect how we are treated within the judicial system and how much our rights are respected. But I think they also go to how much the label of criminal sticks to us. Probably every listener we have now, uh, including those of us sitting around this table as part of our production crew, we have committed a crime at some point. And in fact, we we were talking about, we went over the speed limit on our way here. And as soon as we saw a car with lights on the top of it, up around the bend, we slammed on the brakes so we wouldn't be caught. And we consider that a normal part of our, our work time commuting. And we don't think about 
being classified as a criminal element because simply we break what we consider our everyday laws. We, we have a way of justifying that as everybody does it. And we're seeing even that justification coming out of the White House. Well, if everybody commits uh, campaign fraud violations, then it's not really wrong or somehow it's not really illegal. But I think particularly if you're an immigrant and you commit a violation of any kind, that criminal label sticks to you like flypaper and doesn't go away. As a U.S. citizen, though, you have nothing to fear. Isn't that right? In terms of? Uh, being being um, uh, incarcerated by ICE uh, and being or, treated and being uh, deported. I'm, I'm, I'm leading up to the Right, fact. and I was going to say, as <clears throat> Lynn, is that really the case, <clears throat> yeah. that if you are, in fact, a citizen, you have nothing to fear? Absolutely not. I can give examples of citizens who immigration customs enforcement thought that they must be illegal because they're a spouse of somebody who's undocumented and they're treated just disgustingly um there's examples of people who are u.s citizens who've been deported there's the the court system that governs deportation has so many fewer protections than even the american criminal court system that stuff like that happens. In fact, I've I've read there's some question about the exact number, but in the neighborhood of 20,000 U.S. citizens have been wrongly deported since 2003. In the ICE courts, uh, you do not have constitutional rights. Uh, you, you know, do you carry your papers with you? When you I don't have places. papers. I, I was going to say, <laughs> what papers? I, I yeah. don't know what papers I should carry, and that's a good thing, but I don't carry my papers with me. Exactly. Uh, if I had darker skin, I'd be in jeopardy. I could just be picked up and taken away, and that is fact that's happened in great numbers. Well, the other thing, one way that can happen, too, this is a very specific right, is that immigrants are not entitled to paid counsel. They're entitled to counsel. Right but not at the government's expense. So if you can't yeah. afford it, you have to go through this immigration uh, quagmire without any competent legal advice of, from somebody who knows the language and knows what they're doing. And the kinds of due process I think we're accustomed to seeing, even in TV shows, where if the police gather information illegally, it can't be used. That doesn't apply in these ICE courts. Uh, they can do pretty much anything they want to do and they can present any case they want to present. Uh, and you're right, you have no right to counsel. You're allowed to get counsel, uh, but you have no right to it. And you don't even have the right to be informed of what your limited rights are. Right. There's There are no paid translators waiting to assist the customer yeah. <laughs> with ICE the way that the, the INS used to have available for people. This is not about helping people through the system. This is, is, am I wrong in saying that ICE has pretty much become single focused on getting people out of the country by whatever means possible? Absolutely. There's a specific division of ICE called Enforcement and Remo Removal Operations. And that's their mission. It's it's become a deportation mill, a deportation factory. 
there are many people like the Mauritanians who, who came as refugees who have been allowed to stay in the U.S. as long as they kept checking in with ICE once a year. Okay, you haven't committed a crime. You're still a good person. Great. We'll see you next year. And what happened as early as February 2017 is that those regular check-ins turned into a check-in for deportation. And people were showing up that they'd been in the country for 20 years and the meetings had been uneventful, usually showing up being, they were being shackled with ankle monitors or they were being arrested <laughs> and then they were told pack your bags, purchase your own flight and get out of here and there's another step in the process where, uh, which we won't go into in great detail now but there are private prisons uh, so there's essentially a, an industry built on government contracts and if it's not a private prison it's very common that a local jail where uh, the rent sells so it becomes a funding source for the local uh, police uh, so there's I think there's a real industry there that really wants to see this process continue absolutely CoreCivic and Geo Group the best thing that could happen for their business was Trump and they know it and they supported his transition in his campaign we recently were out at the Core Civic Detention Facility in Youngstown. Most of the people that we talked to from Youngstown did not even know that there were immigrants detained there. They thought it was purely a federal criminal prison. But five faith leaders from the Canton area came and they had been wanting to provide ministerial services to the immigrants and had been denied earlier. So they came again and asked to do so. I mean, you should have seen the police cars, the assistant warden, the core civic security guards, nobody knew what to do with this because they didn't want to let them in because heaven forbid you give spiritual counseling to immigrants in civil detention, but they didn't want to kick them out because the media was there. And after about three hours, the, the faith leaders were arrested for trespassing. But what's interesting is a couple of days later in the paper, core civic had obviously reached out to the plane dealer and pitched a story about how we're just here to, you know, bring prosperity to Youngstown and are, we're bringing these revenues. And by the way, we're not actually enforcing immigration law. We're just helping the government solve problems. Right. But in fact, they have a quota system, right? That they need to have, they have these enormous detention facilities which means there are beds that represent dollars to they them. They want to fill. Yeah, exactly. They want them filled because it's money either for the private co corporations or for the, the local county jails. But I thought it was important that CoreCivic said, wanted it known that they they believe they're not enforcing immigration laws because it, that was clear to me that they realize it's a moral choice and that they're on the wrong side of it. So I'm not giving them any credit for because obviously they're making money um, incarcerating humans, but the fact that they felt compelled to point that out to me shows that we might be chipping away a little bit at at the way at, at, at what people think is is right and moral that they felt like they had to point out that they're not it's not their decision who they who gets put in their jail they're just giving them a house. And you talked about people who would uh, go to a sort of a regular meeting and had been going for years and suddenly uh, they're monitored or incarcerated there. I know there have been a number of ruses that ICE has resorted to. Uh, I'm aware of what's 
what would have been called Spanish-speaking days, where a locale will say, listen, uh, on this date we're going to have translators available. If you have any issues, uh, come in and, and the translators will help you resolve your issues if you have issues with the police or with the courts. And as or they with come, your landlord. Or, uh, mm-hmm. Sure, and as you come in, you're put in buses and taken away. Um, there have been times where ICE pretended to be OSHA sure. and called meetings <laughs> to educate workers on, on safety issues in the workplace and then did raids. That's happened, that happened under the Bush administration, but one tactic the current administration is using is just lying to children who answer the door. They, they like to go to homes at six in the morning and bang on the door and try to get somebody to open it. And so if the kid, say, say a kid opens the door or somebody who's informed about their rights and, and they say, well, we don't, we, you know, unless you have a judicial warrant, we're not letting you in. They say things like, well, oh, that law, that law got changed. That's not the law anymore. Sure. Now, yeah, you have to let us in now. And sometimes they wear police uniforms. Yep. Because it says police, ice on the back, or and police on the back. Because police uh, don't, their charter is criminal law, not immigration law. And so they can mislead uh, immigrants into thinking that they're talking to the police about a robbery or a murder or a rape, and boom, they've got them. Yeah, and, and there is actually now, since we've had, you know, almost two years of this administration, it's been enough time to document that there's a drop-off in crime reporting among, we don't, we can't, we don't know immigrants, but we can say Hispanics because that's how the data is right. tracked sure. uh, in Texas and in Southern California right. because people are afraid to call the police means that you're putting yourself at risk for deportation. And that has extended to there are fewer Latina women who are accessing services for domestic violence, uh, fewer Latino kids who are being registered for um, school lunch programs because in anything that looks institutionalized or official, uh, can now be used as a seen as a threat because it's it can be an ice ruse. Absolutely. What what's happening is people are just trying to live the most underground life possible. So where where are the places you have to go? You have to go to work. What's the mm-hmm. safest way to get to work? There and back. You know, getting to the store is a risk. Going to meet your child's teacher for school literacy night is a risk. And so everything you do that to us is part of our normal day, you have to calculate do the benefits outweigh the risks because, you know, my most important priority is to be able to keep providing for my family. And you you hear people sometimes say, well, they aren't citizens. They don't deserve constitutional rights. They don't deserve rights. And that is such a hollow, legalistic kind of argument. Uh, we're talking about human beings being treated decently. It's as simple as that. Being able to call the police if you're robbed. Being able to go to a hospital if you've been raped or beaten up. And those are points where you have to avoid it to be safe. It's uh, We were talking earlier, too. It's it's also about human dignity. They don't, the people who say those things don't believe that immigrants have dignity and, and deserve respect. And I always want to say to them, you know, what did you do to merit being born in the United States? Because I did nothing. I got lucky. 
you know, let's thank God that we were born here, but let's have compassion for people who weren't and are just striving to have the basics. And I come from a line of immigrants that came here a long, long time ago, and they came from Northern Europe, but they were immigrants. Exactly. (laughs) And it's also not the case that, and it's never been the case, that rights to American citizens, if they're on, if they're under the control or under the auspices of the U.S., are the only people entitled to those rights. If you are traveling here from another country, if you are somehow under the jurisdiction of the U.S. system, those rights, because in fact we see those as fundamental rights of human beings and the way a democracy ought to operate, we extend those rights to all people. Yeah, I mean, they are human rights. They're codified, made into law, and that's what makes them either legal or constitutional rights, but they start from being how you ought to treat people. Just be decent and be reasonable and fair with them. We're going to take another short break now, and we've got a whole lot more to talk about in terms of immigration and what are our misconceptions. Also, what can we as citizens do about the situation? We'll be back in just a moment with Lynn Tremonte. Welcome back. We're here with Lynn Tremonte talking about immigration. Lynn, I wanted to get into briefly, for the last several months, the country has been rightfully focused on horrible abuses happening at our southern borders. And the ways that the Trump administration zero tolerance policies have affected families. And we've seen horrible pictures of babies being torn literally away from their mother's breast. We've seen uh, children in cages. And we have seen children and families, many of whom are forever now separated unless something drastic happens but their their parents have been deported and there's no record keeping to follow what has happened to the children in the United States Um, we know that uh, Jeff Sessions uh, supported this policy supposedly as a deterrent to keep uh, parents from even attempting to come into the United States. But that has been our focus on uh, immigrant families. And I'm wondering if you can talk about ways that immigration is, in fact, about families and always has been. That's right. I mean, the I think the visuals and the audio were what really 
shock the nation's conscience. When you read it on paper, children in cages, you don't believe it. But when you see it with your own eyes, it's really, um, it's really hard to take. What we haven't done is brought the camera into the home of, you know, the children whose dad's deported and suddenly the oldest child's taking care of the three younger children and mom has to work two jobs and they're, you know, they need help with their homework and they don't have enough food and we don't have a taped audio of those children crying for their parents. Those are American citizens in many cases um, and it's happening every day in our backyard and we don't know about it. Or the day when an 11 year old comes home and waits for mom and waits for mom and waits for mom and mom doesn't come home. Mom doesn't come. Not an exaggeration. No. We've spoken with people who have been um, subject to the raids that happened at Freshmark and at Corsos. And agents did ask, do any of you have unsupervised children? at home. And I'm thinking about myself, if I were a parent and I were being shackled and put on a bus to nowhere, and in fact they were not being told where they were being taken and they were in fact being driven out of state, would I tell any of those agents that I had three children at home? And I think most of us would probably say no and most of us would hope that neighbors that you know we lived as part of an immigrant community where we had either neighbors or friends or relatives or co-workers or somehow that there was a social network that would know my children were there and would move to take care of them because yeah, um, th- these are people who obviously don't have your best interest in mind, right. so you could put your kids in jeopardy right, instead right. of help keep them safe. Right, and certainly don't have my kids' best interest at heart. And from what we have seen happening at the border, the very real issue of will I ever see my children again if I turn my children over to that system in the name of getting care for them. The experience of being a, a parent in the United States, if you're undocumented, is completely different than being a parent and and having full citizenship. How so? When Trump was elected, one of the first requests we got from the immigrant community was clinics on powers of attorney so hmm. that they could properly fill out a power of attorney form to give somebody temporary decision-making power for their children. People if if they this, disappeared, if they were if they were yeah. detained, people, Americans can barely face the fact that we're going to die and put together a will. Right, <laughs> right. Imagine having the foresight or the love or whatever, knowing to sign away your kid to somebody else for a short period of time because you might not be there. These families come up with plans. If this happens, go here. Imagine the anxiety. Of a, to be a kid growing up, knowing that your family's safety plan if one of your parents is, is arrested. Imagine the pit of your stomach when your dad comes home a little bit late from work or when you drive um, past and you see those flashing lights 
you guys slowed down, you were not stopped for speeding, and you got here okay. That does that's not how that turns out for for a lot of immigrants. So I think the one, the other unexplained or unexplored area is about trauma to American children. Absolutely. Because of what we're doing. This administration has tried to make it equivalent to, well, if a parent commits a crime, then the kid you know, has to be separated from the parent too, and that's really traumatic for the child too. And, and of course, that's the case, but they, that parent doesn't, lose, doesn't automatically lose their child and never get to see their child again if they commit a crime. They get to come back to them after they serve their sentence. And the process they go through is one where they have uh, right to counsel, they have constitutional protections through that process. That's not the case for immigrants. Absolutely. That's just, I mean, it's it's so compelling. You know, uh, those of you listening aren't sitting here at the table with us, and I think we all teared up as you talked about that. It makes me mad, too, because um, I... I see the folks that I work with as really hard workers who really, you know, they love America. Like, they love what we stand for. And they have already decided that it's not going to apply to them because of the way the laws are. But they want it for their kids, so they're willing to live a life like this so that their kids can have full American citizenship. And isn't that a good thing? Right. Like, don't we want somebody who cares that much to, <laughs> sure. to be a member of our country formally? Right. Yeah. Who's willing to sacrifice for the future. And who is willing to work so hard and to live with the danger because living in this country is worth that right. for them. Yeah. I, I share your anger when I think about even just trying to get neighbors and friends and students, et cetera, to just go to vote. Mm-hmm. When I think about the number of people who risk their lives, literally risk their lives today, it's not just ancient American history, but who risk their lives on a daily basis because they want what this country has to offer its citizens. And as you, your your first point of nobody chooses to come here illegally, they would come here legally and be full participating law-abiding citizens if that Absolutely. option were available to them. And and they're not even coming here to have a baby to get legal later because the laws are so crazy that even if you have an, a, a, a child who's American, that child can't sponsor you for a green card until they're 21. By the time they become 21, you have been in the country for so long without papers that there's another section of the law that prevents you from be- becoming a citizen. <laughs> so it's it's almost like it was perfectly designed coming and to, going to, to keep you. people, yeah, to keep people in this <laughs> in this shadow existence. Isn't that another conception that people have? that makes them turn a cold eye toward immigration is that these are people who are in fact taking. They are taking American jobs, they are taking resources, they are living on the dole. Yeah, they're alternately living on the dole and and working really hard. That notion that these these are people who come here to take right. and that they don't offer, they don't give anything. It's can you address that? I can, way? actually. There was a study that the Joint Finance Committee Democrats put out maybe a year ago 
about the contributions of DACA beneficiaries in rural America. And DACA is a temporary uh, work permit that was created under the Obama administration that is only available to a specific category of young people who came here before they had any ability to decide where, whether they could leave or not. You know, young people, mm-hmm. people who came here as babies, children. And it's no longer available to people to apply newly because the, Trump is uh, canceling it. But for a while, it was it's very popular. It's been very successful because we're talking about kids who don't have American citizenship on paper but feel American in their hearts because this is all they've ever known. What the study found was that DACA, once people got DACA, they were purchasing cars at local dealerships. They were purchasing homes. You know, tax payments were increasing. You know, that's good for the landlords or for the people that are rent- the real estate agents and the people that want to sell mm-hmm. their houses. And we all know there's a housing uh, crisis in Ohio in terms of abandoned houses in our cities and in our rural areas. So if we could get more people purchasing them, maintaining the homes, that'd be great. You're getting more money into the local businesses. People are able to actually further their education, get you know advanced degrees to, to earn more money for themselves and their family, but contribute more in taxes as well. So and yeah. sales taxes as well, and, right? The more yes. purchasing you do, and lots the more of immigrants you're contributing to a sales tax base, and many pay income income taxes as well. There's a, a a number that you can use to file your federal income taxes, and many immigrants that I know that don't have papers do file their taxes because they want to do. They know that there's this one part of their life that they can't fix right now that's out of the bounds of the law, but they want to do everything else right because they are they respect the law. And they want to act as though they are American citizens in every way uh, because that's what they want to be. Okay. They're just not legally recognized as yeah. American citizens. Yeah, I think citizens. they've accepted the bargain that if you're going you, to be here and benefiting from a, a society where you can get a job, then you do have to pay taxes and you have to you know, understand the law. It's, it's, the, it's the contract, social contract, and, and I know many immigrants that embrace it. So that's what they accept. That's the price they're willing to pay to raise their kids here and teach them to love this country. Right. Amazing. I know the country I grew up in, I was taught, I thought of it. I I lived, I mainly grew up in Connecticut. I was near New York. I remember the Statue of Liberty. Uh, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. Absolutely. to breathe free. A very benevolent, narrative, kind, gracious, inclusive kind of thing. Of course, that has not been the country's history uh, with immigrants and with refugees. Um, one of the most scandalous periods of time is before and during World War II, where we would not let Jews in the country when we knew what was happening to them. But that's another topic. Do we recognize refugees anymore? People who are forced to leave uh, in order to survive, forced to flee from someplace, do they immediately become immigrants when they hit our border? They're refugees oh. until they get there to the I, wall. If you ask Trump, I think he'd say they're terrorists. Um, oh, sure. His, so, you know, under Trump and, and Stephen Miller, they would love it if they could seal up the country. Refugees spend years in a UNCHR refugee camp. They go through so many background checks, DNA tests interviews it's not a 
good way to come to the country if you have ill intentions. Is it's not it does it's not quick. It's not easy. So you know the Trump administration has reduced the numbers of refugees that the U.S. will accept. Another program we have called temporary protected status, which is for uh, groups of uh, groups of nationals of a certain country, if they've had either political disasters or man-made disa- or natural disasters, can get some uh, immigration relief. They're gutting that program completely. What they're about to do is send hundreds of thousands of Salvadorans and Haitians, Haitians yes. back to and Nicaraguans back to countries that will not cannot absorb them. And El Salvador. I mean, there's still, you know, still sending people here. It's, so it's creating, it's going to create even more instability in those countries. At this point, the Haitians and Salvadorans and Nicaraguans have lived here for 20 years plus. And again, just like the Mauritanians, they've built their lives here. Their kids are American. They, they built businesses here. They, they're getting older, you know, they're about to face the shock of their lives to be being sent back because this administration wants to get rid of as many people as possible and keep out as many people as possible. And we're going to take another short break now and be back to talk about what those of us who are just plain ordinary citizens can do. What they tell us how they compel us I know what it's like to wonder what is true In the speeches, the ignorant preachers I know what it's like to be resented too In the brackish If you like what you hear, please tell, well, everybody about us. For more information, links, and other great stuff, check out our website, www.heartlandwoman.com. Welcome back to Heartland Woman with Lynn Tremonte today. And Lynn, we've got sort of uh, a few minutes to wrap up, and we'd like to talk to you about now the action component of this what what can what can people do doug you're chomping at the bit here you know all the stuff we've talked about just sounds really interesting it's real you know human drama but it's not me you know i'm a white guy i live the american (laughs) dream i grew up in connecticut and moved to california you know, why should I help? Really, why should, how does this affect me? I mean, does it involve me at all? How does it relate to me? Well, um, a lot of the products that you're eating, the food on your table, was touched by immigrant hands in at least one, if not many, stages. Yeah. And that was true before Trump took office, and that'll be true after Trump took office. And I think the only question you have to ask yourself is, do you want to treat the workers behind delicious meal you're eating with dignity and respect and fair wages and labor standards? Or do you are you okay with treating them like disposable machines that we can toss away once their bodies are broken and used up and get a new one? So I think that's one reason why you should care. And, and in fact, 
this labor, farm labor, as a whole is not easy labor. It is hard, hard, dangerous, often dangerous work to do. It's and and anybody who is just worked on a farm picking strawberries or whatever during the summer to pay help pay for tuition knows that that it's it's very hard work to do and That's we have the farm work here in the in the midwest we also have other kinds of food processing yes uh so there's a wide range of jobs that uh, frankly i wouldn't want to work and i'm glad i haven't had to right um, but at the same time we also you know, we love our farmers, right? And we, we, oh, the great American farmer would not be in business if it were not for immigrant workers. It's not to say there aren't Americans working alongside immigrants. There are. What we saw in the reaction to the Corso's raid and is that the people who were comfortable speaking out and telling about what really happened in the media were, the, were Americans who had worked with the immigrant workers for a long time and knew them to be good people and felt like what had happened to them was really wrong. So I think uh, in Ohio and, and in some of these um, manufacturing and, and farming industries, it's an opportunity for Americans who know how hard immigrants work to really step up and say, you know, wait a minute, we should not be treating my friend this way and to speak out because there's this perception that there there's only political support for immigrants in the big cities. So in the places in rural America where there are where there are people who know how hard immigrants work and what role they play in our communities, we really need them to step up and speak up. So those people who actually know them and share part of their lives with them Correct. have a very different feeling about it. The people I vote for make the laws and the policy that affect them, so I suppose I should make a point of getting my tail out and voting, being aware and voting. And knowing how my candidates mm -hmm. exactly. stand. Exactly. Uh, so what can we do? Oh my gosh, there's so much to do. I, we've been talking about a lot of things that are talking about the ways, direction, the direction that this country is going and that sounds bad. But the one of the most important positive outcomes I've seen over the last two years or so is the citizen activism and engagement. People are not waiting for somebody to tell them how you can get involved in serving your community. Lots of opportunities for transportation. The other day, somebody uh, from the Corso's raid was released on bond, and he needed somebody to pick him up from Youngstown and get him a little bit further towards Norwalk. So people sign up for that. Um, there's a whole web of donation deliveries. Mm -hmm. People are collecting donations of food, gift cards, and then there's a, a distribution system that's been set up so you can volunteer to drive a leg of the um, distribution and see what sparks your uh, imagination. Uh, one woman got in touch with me. She's a social worker, and she was just sort of around listening to what was going on and said, you know what, I think I might have something to offer here. So she has helped organize a network of therapists and social workers that are uh, working with children whose parents are uh, arrested in the raids or otherwise facing deportation that are helping them deal with issues of PTSD mm -hmm. and trauma that she's doing, you know, so she's sort of taking an organizing role. This is a great opportunity for people to do as much or as little as they have time for. 
there's always the need for money, donate monetary donations. Uh, that goes without saying. There are legal services groups that represent immigrants for free, but they need funding. There are nonprofits that do a lot of the filler work, so helping the uh, you know the mom the moms in jail how to, for immigration things. Why? How, who's taking care of the kids? How do we connect them to the right church? Things so, like so that. So when you say filler, you mean there's little gaps where people can fall through, and there are different organizations that can step up and fill those gaps. Right. Can can people encourage their own congregation of worship, whatever that may be, to um, to to try to organize needs in their community? I've I've heard. A, a lot of need for for just diapers mm-hmm. yeah uh, because yeah there's you know we know that diapers are expensive and if you and, need one you need one and if you need it you need it and, <laughs> have you been there before uh, <laughs> i'm told and <laughs> that that the the people who are trying to help the families surviving uh the raids in ohio see a real strong need for for diapers it, that's absolutely true um, if you don't know where to start if, if you hear all these ideas and you want to help but you don't know where to start going to a local church is a really good idea also yeah and just asking you know are there is there a, an organ a nonprofit organization that I should connect with a lot of it in in rural America is happening through individual leaders who step up who are not affiliated with any organization. Mm-hmm. So it may seem intimidating to try to find out an entry point, but the, the churches are a really good place to start. And then again, if you're in Ohio, America's Voice Ohio Facebook group, reach out to me. And then I can also connect you with different people who run their own groups. There's a whole group for the, the donations to families. Uh, it's a whole other group on Facebook. Is it donations only of money or is it of things in things. kind yeah, as well? things okay. in kind. The other thing is that, you know, if we, we want to talk about influencing our politicians, you know, obviously go to the town halls, send them the letters, make the phone calls. You get, if you get the action alerts, things like that. Twitter is not, we, we have not maximized our Twitter footprint in Ohio, but all the politicians in D.C. and all of the media use Twitter. So we could be much more effective in Ohio in, in determining priorities and holding um, politicians accountable if, if more of us were on Twitter and we're using it. And I think the point should be made here that this is really, as much as we have been faulting Trump, there's a good reason to do that, but this is also really a bipartisan effort. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bush family, for example, had a very long history of supporting sensible immigration reform. And right. the idea of holding a politician accountable, that sounds like a very daunting mm. thing to take on. But what that means is um, send an email, write a letter. It's in, Call. It's Call. Yes, the phone numbers are available for you. You can find them rather readily. And it's remarkable how much they pay attention to getting a phone call. I, I encourage people to call the White House. I do it frequently whenever I'm angry. Because it's on speed dial. Huh? Pe- people think... <laughs> oh, uh, you again. Yeah, well, call your senator. Yeah, that's, representative. That's yep. what they're there for. And call them up if you don't have time to sit down and write a lengthy letter give them a phone call and 
say this matters to me and and I'm watching and I will not only do I vote but so does everyone in my yeah. family and in my neighborhood that's why they publish their phone numbers just be respectful to them and nice when you talk right. to them and they will keep track right. of the phone right. call right. Um, Lynn, I'm also wondering, do you have a, a means for people who might have a special skill, whether um, they are attorneys or physicians or dentists or translators who can't do this full time, but who might want to participate yes. to like-minded folks? I um, The best way to do it is through the Facebook page because that's where I sort of organize different groups and find people that have similar skill sets and then move them into offline groups. I'm looking at different technologies to be able to, the, a, a website itself is not enough because you need to have a level of different levels of access. So like the public information that mm -hmm. everybody can see, but then the volunteer opportunities some of them are things like picking people up at their home and driving them to a medical right. appointment. Yes. And you have to make sure that the person that you know who's doing that and that, you know, that they're doing it for mm -hmm. the right reasons and that they are going to be responsible about it. So it's a little bit challenging. I found that this closed, closed Facebook group is for me working really well right now. And then what I do is sort of serve as like a, a portal to then push people to different leaders that are taking on different aspects. So you call it a closed Facebook page for those of pe people who aren't familiar with that. It's very open for someone to contact you and you request yes. to be allowed in. Right. So there's essentially a little bit of a screen that you go through. It helps to keep the trolls out. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But, but uh, yeah. you're not trying to keep everybody out. You're yeah. just trying to control so it makes some sense because you're concerned about people's safety. Exactly. And I do want to be clear that in my experience, the advocates I work with in Ohio, even if some, if, if you see us saying, oh, the Trump administration's doing this or whatever, when it comes to serving the community, we are nonpartisan. We do not, we are not about, you know, trying, making people feel uncomfortable if they identify as Republican or Green Party or Libertarian or Democrat or whatever. We don't talk about politics when it's, when we're talking about who can drive this food this food to Salem? Who can, you know, who can come to this donation and staff donation tent and staff it for a day? We do not ask you how you voted or if you voted. We just want people who are there for who really who are you know we want people who, to come and show up and help. So it's about helping people who need help. It's not about politics. Uh, yeah. It does, it deliver, for, when you for, deliver for the, the service. volunteers and yeah. yeah and deliveries. I mean, I, as a advocate and a policy person, I have to say that um, you know the policies that we're dealing with right now under a particular administration are so regressive and so different from what we were dealing with just two years ago. So politics do matter, but when it comes to just meeting basic needs, that's sure. it's not a, it's not part of the conversation. Right. It's a it's about human. Right. Right, and and ending that individual human suffering in a right. way that transcends politics. Totally. Thank you, Lynn, so much for this conversation, and I'm sure we'll have more conversations with you in the near future, hopefully. Lynn Tremonte, once again, check out our website. There'll be links there for you and more information for you. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you. We'll leave you today with this thought from Helen Keller. 
I do not want the peace that passeth understanding. I want the understanding which bringeth peace. Thanks for listening. Be well, and we'll see you next time.